to be with our team in Redemption Kids. And as you turn to the book of Nehemiah this morning, uh, I would love just to welcome all of you, whether you're worshiping here at Mefford High School or with us online. We are so glad you've taken the time to worship with us today. If you are new, I met a few new people walking in this morning. We are so thankful that you were able to come and worship with us. We do have an app, okay. You can go to your app store on your phone. Uh, look for Redemption Hill Church Medford and you will find our RHC app. And there is a digital connect card. We would love for you to take a couple of moments, whether right now or later, and uh, fill that out so we can get to know you. Uh, there are also opportunities to give there. We don't expect that out of the new people, by the way, to support what God's doing through Redemption Hill financially. But it is a good opportunity for me to highlight that we, by God's grace and provision, had a really strong year financially in 2021 uh, in, in spite of all the craziness in our world. And I just want to thank you, Redemption Hill, for us all being in this together, giving out of the resources that God has given to us so that we can see his mission advance in Medford and throughout greater Boston and the world. So let me just thank you uh, for doing that. You can, yeah, you can encourage one another as well. Uh, well, this morning we're going to jump into the book of Nehemiah. In this series, we're calling it Build Again. Build Again. I, I, I don't know about you, but it can feel like our world is in ruins. Do you, does that resonate with you at all? I mean, we are, we, are, we are almost two full years into a global pandemic, and we see all of the, the effects, all of the, 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 the health implications, all of the restrictions, all of the social isolation, all of the mental and health, emotional health problems, not to mention just everything else that is going on in our world that we've seen, injustice and, and problems at work, problems in the city, just so many things that, that feel like are coming against us, it can feel like our world is in ruin, which probably leads most of us to really long for in our individual lives, in our businesses, in our schools, in our city, to experience a reset. We're all longing for a reset to be able to be in a place to move forward and begin building again. We, we want to build again. We want to rebuild the relationships that have been distanced. We want to rebuild the things that maybe aren't what we want them to be or what they ought to be. And, and, and so God is, is inviting us into a mindset and prayerfully an opportunity increasingly more and more where we can build again. And we've seen this over and over throughout human history. You can be encouraged today that, that many have gone to not only where we have, have gone in the past couple of years, but in fact they have, they have uh, tra traversed through much tougher terrain. We see this in the Bible so many times. And we're going to come to a story where we see the people of God, the people of Israel, experiencing their, their deepest point of pain in a millennia. What we need to understand as we come to the book of Nehemiah is that in 586 B.C., Jerusalem fell. It was conquered by the Babylonians and the people, many people, not all the people, but many of the people were conquered and captured and carried off into exile. And yet, even in 
exile. Even in their lowest points of pain, there were still faithful men and women who continued to look to God. And it was after the fall of Jerusalem that the book of Lamentations hear the word lament, hear the word grieving and mourning and responding to pain. The book of Lamentations was written and it talked about the bitterness and the affliction and the oppression and it felt like daggers were being put into their, their, their souls. And yet, chapter 3 verse 21 says this, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I hope you will hear God ask this question to your soul today. Whether you're here, online, wherever. Listen to it on a podcast later this week. Listen, did the sun rise this morning? Did, did, the, sun, did the sun get up? If the sun got up, God is saying, hope is on the horizon. I am still in charge. My mercies are still new every single day. And so we're going to look at this story of hope. But this story of hope starts with a lesson in praying through pain. So I want to read chapter 1 for us. And we're going to see what's going on here with this man, Nehemiah, as he's in exile in the, the Persian Empire, and, and what he hears this report happening in Jerusalem, how he responds. This is what Nehemiah chapter 1 says. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. For the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you had commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, 
I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. As we jump into Nehemiah and as we explore what it can look like, listen, what it can look like, not just in a generic sense, okay, not just esoterically for this people known as Redemption Hill or whatever, okay, but yes, for us as a church collectively, but also for you individually as a part of this church and what God is doing in our city, in our world. What can it look like? And we see here, and sometimes we don't love sermons on this because we struggle with this, but this is what the text says, and so this is where we're going, okay? Building again begins with heartfelt prayer. Building again begins with heartfelt prayer. I want to give you just an overview of what is happening in Nehemiah's. We're going to be spending roughly nine, ten weeks uh, throughout this, this book, okay? Uh, you need to know that the Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament combined the book of Ezra and Nehemiah into one. And they did, that, they did that because they really capture one story of the exiles who were returning to Jerusalem and the challenges that they faced. Now, Nehemiah is the primary author of the book of Nehemiah. And we say primary because the first seven chapters are written in the first person. The last half of chapter 12 and all of chapter 13 are written in the first person. The, the other chapters aren't, which may indicate that a, an editor took the memoirs of Nehemiah and then some other historical documents and brought it all together in one book. We can't be sure that is likely what is going on. But this was set in the Persian Empire. Verse 1 also tells us that not only the words of Nehemiah, whose name means the Lord comforts. This is, this is a book of comfort, no doubt about it. Um, it tells us that this all happened in the 20th year as he was in Susa, the citadel. The 20th year likely refers to the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. And we know that the Persian capital in the wintertime was in Susa. So that is the main place of the setting of chapter 1. But most of the rest of the book takes place in Jerusalem, which was the royal city of the people of Israel. Now, what we need to understand historically, as I already alluded to, is that the Israelites had been captured and exiled, first by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and then by King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon around 600 B.C. Thankfully, by the work of God who turns king's hearts wherever he wills, as it says in the book of Proverbs, in 539 the Persians conquered the Babylonians and Cyrus the Great enacted some new policies which allowed many of the exiles to return home and, yes, worship their God as they chose. 
which was when the rebuilding of the temple started at that point in Israel. But what we see here throughout these books, particularly Nehemiah, we're going to see that the people were suffering under economic hardship, but also a spiritual crisis because of their own unfaithfulness to God. Which, why the, the first major theme of the book deals with covenant renewal between God and his people. Everything in the book of Nehemiah primarily addresses the relationship between God and his people. By the way, the whole Bible is about how God wants a relationship with real people, you and me. And so the, the, the book is going to highlight this relationship. Yes, we see it in chapter 1 through Nehemiah's prayer. We will see it explicitly in chapters 8 through 13 as both Nehemiah and Ezra teach from the Torah, the law, the, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, but then also uh, we see that secondarily it is about God's people rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. This is what takes up most of chapters 1 through 7. We, we find that when Babylon ransacked Jerusalem more than 140 years ago, uh, they tore down the walls of the city and then that's why it says in verse 3 that the physical and spiritual condition of Jerusalem is described as the exiles are in great trouble and great shame. One Hebrew scholar says that the word trouble or distress is perhaps the strongest word in the Hebrew language that depicts danger, disaster, calamity, or misery. He says it basically describes a condition detrimental to life itself. And then the word shame can refer to reproach or disgrace or scorn or insult or contempt or threat. This was the, the condition, the physical condition of, of Israel, but the physical condition, really a picture of the spiritual condition of the city. So when we say build again, most of the time people think Nehemiah, they think rebuilding a wall. But yes, they're rebuilding a wall, but more importantly, they're rebuilding their relationship with God. And all throughout the book, the third theme that we'll see is that God mercifully protects and empowers his people for the work. As they rebuild, God is protecting them. He is empowering them for the work to physically rebuild the wall. But yes, more importantly, spiritually rebuild their relationship with God. A lot of times people come to the book of Nehemiah and, and leaders love the book of Nehemiah because we see this man of God who was an incredible leader. And yes, there are so many leadership principles and insights that we'll see as we move through the book of Nehemiah. But Nehemiah is not primarily a book on leadership. It is a, primarily a book about God's relationship with his people. And so this, this deplorable condition, physically and spiritually, leads Nehemiah this influential man of God, as he hears the words to, to possess such a burden in his soul that he responds by prayer. And that's what we're going to see as we really dive into verses 4 through 11. What I want to do is this. I want to I give us a framework just straight through Nehemiah's prayer that will help us pray through pain. 
We, we, all, we all experience pain in life. Surely, surely the last two years have helped us see this perhaps clearer than any point in our lives, that, that we all experience pain. We all experience mental and emotional and physical and spiritual pain. Some of it is because things have go, that are going on around us. Some of it is because of things happening within us. Yes, we have an enemy who doesn't like us at all, and there's the reality of spiritual warfare. And this is all of this, we are going to experience pain. The question is not, will we experience pain, but what will we do when we experience pain? And Nehemiah gives us a really good framework on how to pray through the pain. I want to give you five ways to pray as we work through these verses, okay? Number one, what we should do when we start is we should praise God for his character and his work. Praise God for his character and his work. Verse four captures the gravity of Nehemiah's response when it says that when he heard, I love it, it says, as soon as I heard these words, this, was, this hit his soul so hard that he could do nothing but weep and sit down and fast for days and days and days. Sitting was a posture of humility. It was a customary posture for fasting. Fasting, as you probably know, means forsaking food voluntarily. And if it's biblical fasting, it is forsaking food for a spiritual purpose. So when we fast, we, we uh, are saying, God, you are more important than food. I desire you and your ways more than anything this world has to offer. The reason we see fasting and prayer usually coupled together in the scriptures is because fasting is a mechanism to enhance our prayers. You want to get serious about prayer? Put a fast on it. Because, because what we are saying is, look, I would, rather, I would rather seek you than enjoy food. That, that, that my spirit, I want my spiritual hunger to grow and to exceed my physical hunger in life. And so Nehemiah fasts and Nehemiah prays. And he begins in verse 5 and he prays, O Lord God of heaven. Your Bible may have the word Lord in all caps. When you see the, the, the word Lord in all caps, it refers to the divine name that God gave Moses in Exodus 3, Yahweh. Yahweh means I am. God, God, Nehemiah is praying to Yahweh, the I am, the one who is self-sufficient, dependent on no one, and who rules the entire world. It's not surprising that he says, God of heaven. Sometimes this phrase was used in international context to say, I mean, think about it. Nehemiah is in the Persian Empire. He is hundreds and hundreds of miles from Jerusalem. And he is saying, God, the God in heaven, he is God here as much as he is God there. He is, as my kids are learning around the dinner table, where is God? God is everywhere. God is the God of heaven, he is the God of earth, and he is the great and the awesome God. This describes his nature, nature and power among all nations. This is why we will hear refrains in the scripture, repeated phrases that say, there is none like you. I hope you know God as a great God like that. But then Nehemiah begins to recount the great and awesome ways of God, and he goes on to say that this great and awesome God keeps covenant. 
A covenant, or sometimes we think about the covenant of marriage. A covenant is a, a relationship that is based on mutual promises of commitment. And the ultimate covenant, even why I would argue the reason we have the covenant of marriage is to picture for us the, the much more important relationship that we all can enjoy with God. But God has always related to his people based on covenant, a commitment to one another based on mutual promises. Now, as we're going to see and as you've experienced, we don't always hold up our end of the commitment, but God always does. This is why Nehemiah goes on and he says, not only does God keep covenant, but he keeps steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. The Hebrew word steadfast love is the word chesed. This is why we named our second daughter chesed. It, it refers to uh, compassion or mercy or kindness. It, it refers to God's loyal love for his people. That he, all, he, he loves and he always loves. And he never stops loving us. That he is always faithful to do what he said he will do. Exodus 34 verse 6 is the place where God proclaims his name to Moses again. And what does he say? He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. These opening words of Nehemiah's prayer teach us at least two things. Number one, in order to pray properly, we need to know the God to whom we pray. If you want your prayer life to grow, get to know God. Know who he is. Know his character. Know his attributes. Know his names. Know his works. And let that fuel your prayer life. I love, we still love at Redemption. We quote this all the time. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. The first opening line of the book says, there is nothing more important. You might want to write this down if you've never heard it. There is nothing more important than what comes into our minds when we think about God. I'll say it one more time. There is nothing more important. Not your job, not your bank account, not your status, okay, not your relationships. Okay, what is most important about you is whatever comes into your mind when you think about God. We see this in Nehemiah. He knew who he was praying to. God, you're Yahweh. You're the I am. You're the God of heaven. You're the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. But then number two, we should also note, prayer should most often begin with praise. Prayer should most often begin with praise. And even if, listen, even if you do not verbalize, articulate praise with your words, all right, the posture of your heart should be one of praise. Because I would say you can't really look to the God of heaven and not praise him. Worship starts with seeing. Listen, I'll say this, all right? And this is in love, okay? This is not because Pastor Tanner has it all together, that I'm the mighty prayer warrior of the city of Boston or Redemption Hill Church or whatever, okay? But I just know that the more I focus on God and remember who he is, the more that I seem to want to pray. Prayer begins with praise. But then, listen, as we gaze upon God and his perfections, his holiness, then we begin to realize as we look in the mirror, we see our own imperfections. 
which is why Nehemiah then moves, number two, to confess his sins and the sins of the people of Israel. So, so number one, listen, praise God for his character and work, but then number two, confess your, our sins in light of God's holiness. Nehemiah begins verse 6, and he says, God, would you let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the, the voice, the prayer of your servant? Which was a way, just a, in figures of speech, to say, God, would you listen and respond favorably? But then we need to notice that when he begins his confession in verses 6 and 7, it says that Nehemiah begins with confessing the sins of the people of Israel. He says, we, we have acted corruptly. Now, now I don't know about you, but when we hear that, we say, what? My sin is my problem, and your sin is your problem. But Nehemiah is saying, our sin is our problem, and our sin is my problem. Now, this, this came to light to me uh, in an interesting way as I was meditating on this just yesterday. I just realized once again how interesting it is that we use the word we. I'll give you a couple of examples. Yesterday, Marsh and I were talking about our plans for the weekend, you know, Sunday and, and MLK Day. And uh, we said, well, you know, it would be great to have uh, one of our friends over that we didn't get to see over Christmas like we planned because, thank you, Omicron, we didn't get to see her. So, so you know what I said? I said, oh, did we get her a gift? <laughs> and, 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 you know, I kind of had to back up and and, and we just, she just kind of looked at me, and, uh, and I was like, yeah, my, thank you for taking care of that. And, and, then, and then just 20 minutes later, I kid you not, we were talking about having some friends over after church, which is something we normally don't do because normally I'm super tired after, you know, Sundays or whatever. Uh, but, but, you know, I just say, you know, well, it would be fun, and uh, we could do something simple for lunch, by which I meant you can probably figure out something to do for lunch, okay? Now, that's not because, listen, it's not because Pastor Tanita can't cook, all right? I'm not the greatest. I'm definitely not as good as Marsha, okay? But I don't mind cooking. I like cooking. I made some soup last night, all right? So, but the, the point is, we didn't get the gift, and we aren't taking care of lunch. Listen, Western individualism loves taking communal credit, but hates recognizing communal failure. I'll say that again. Western individualism loves taking communal credit, but it hates recognizing communal failure. Perhaps we saw this in bold and underlined form after the death of George Floyd. George Floyd dies, people begin talking more and more about systemic racism. And the response from so many white people, whether it was said or thought, and I have to throw myself in here to a degree as well. What was it? It was, I love black people, 
black people, I have black friends. I didn't go to segregated schools. I don't have any members of my family in the KKK. Like, What we were really saying is this. I'm not a racist. Therefore, I have no responsibility in racism. But that fails to recognize systemic racism and our communal responsibility to care for one another and to recognize that, hey, by the way, we are Christians, all right? We believe that the fall not only affects human hearts, but it affects every area of society, that there are brokenness all over the place. And why wouldn't that show up in relationships and how we treat one another and how we set things up in the workplace or in the city or in government or whatever? We need to look in the mirror and we need to see that our sin is our sin. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote from a Birmingham jail in a related way when he says this, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught. Listen to this. This is, this is just, he was a biblical worldview. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. Tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Nehemiah would seem to agree. And listen, listen, listen. Nehemiah is not abdicating individual responsibility. In fact, in this prayer, what does he say? He says, I and my father's house have sinned. There is an individual responsibility that we recognize, pay attention to, and confess. But we also realize that we are part of a community and how God has shaped us and made us to care for one another and love one another and relate to one another is a communal responsibility. So what's happening over here, to whatever degree, is my responsibility, not just their responsibility. And listen, if, if you are uncomfortable with what I'm saying right now, and you say, oh, Tanner, that was Nehemiah, I follow Jesus. You followed the man who taught us to pray. Father, forgive us. Our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Confess your sin. Confess our sin. And then we move to praying the promises of God. God, you're not okay with this either. And you, you said you want to do something about it. 
And so we begin to, as verses 8 and 9 show us, we begin to pray the promises of God. Verse 8, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. What Nehemiah is referring to is the words that God spoke to the people of Israel before they crossed the Jordan River in Deuteronomy chapter 28. It's, it, so so what, what Nehemiah is doing here is he is saying, God, would you move based on what you have already promised to do? We, we, we see their unfaithfulness as prophesied by God in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Listen to verses 45, 49, 52, and 64. Here it is. All these curses shall come upon you, Israel, and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away. Hello, Assyria. Hello, Babylon. They shall besiege you in all your towns. Hello, 2 Kings 25. Until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. Hello, Nehemiah. And all your, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And chapter 29 makes it explicit why this happened. It says in verse 25, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord. But, but, God also promised blessing renewal, and restoration into their brokenness. In Deuteronomy 30, this is what fashions Nehemiah's prayer. It says this, it says, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. I love this. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven... From there, the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land your forefathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. If you want to learn how to pray, I'm not trying to be fresh here, all right? I'm just giving it to you straight, all right? If you want to learn how to pray, read the Bible. If you want to learn how to pray to God and what you should pray for, then get to know the promises of God in this book and just pray those promises. God, this is what you said, and so I'm asking you to do what you said. What about the, the words of Jesus? Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Just look for all the I wills in Scripture. Matthew 11, 20. Eight, when you come to me, I will give you rest. John 14, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Holy Spirit, waves of power. 
And then John 14, 3, as we look ahead and as we long for the return of Jesus, he promised it. I will come again and will take you to myself. We praise God for who he is. We confess who we are. And then we say, God, would you bring your change based on your promises into what is happening in us and around us because we long for something better. But I love this next little insight. I almost missed it in my preparation, but I had to change my outline and add a fourth point in here. Okay, because Nehemiah doesn't do this alone. We've learned enough about isolation. Who wants to do things alone? God didn't make us to do things alone. He wants us to do things as a community. Yes, as a family. And so when we seek God's power and his favor, listen, don't do it in isolation. Do it together. Seek God's power in community. Look at verse 11. What does it say? Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Now, what's the next line? And to the prayer of your servants. I really believe, based on the words of Scripture, that the degree to which we see God move among us is directly tied to how we pray and pray together. It doesn't negate the fact that God can pray and, and move mountains through one person or, 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 you know, one woman of God. But, but, but listen, listen, there is power when we pray together. God sees that, that we're united. God loves unity. He loves a, a one mind and a one heart that is calling on his name saying, we agree about this, God. Not only do I know what you've said, but she knows what you've said, and he knows what you've said, and we're all in this together. And God, it's not just one of us that needs you, Lord, but we all need you, and we need you really, really bad. So we're going to ask you to move and to move in power. Last Sunday, if you haven't listened to it, go online. If you care anything about our church, go online and listen to last week's sermon, which was a vision sermon for the year. And we're, you know, focused this year on being empowered, living empowered, living in the, the fullness of the Holy Spirit so we can recognize God has gifted us for the good of others. And we have a pretty phenomenal, I think it's a pretty phenomenal vision. But, but listen, it, it, it won't mean anything unless God shows up and does stuff. And we have to pray for it. We have to come together. This is why we pray before the service. I know COVID's kind of, you know, messed up pre-service prayer and all this, but people are still praying before the service. I know COVID's kind of messed up fire nights and whatever, if it's at the center or Zoom or whatever, okay, but we're still having fire nights. Why? Because we value prayer. We've always, we've said for so long, we want to not just be a church that prays, but we want to be a praying church. And so I just want to read our vision statement for you one more time. But as I read it, you need to be thinking, if I care about this and I believe on this, then I need to show up and pray with other people that God would do it and make it happen. Because really, the outworking of this vision is all about the restoration of covenant and community and justice and all the things that our hearts long for and be for. So what is our vision? This is our vision. We see a church full of people gifted by God's Spirit for the good of others. As each person's unique design is discovered, lived, and celebrated with equal excitement, we will collectively take, I can't wait to see it, thousands of joyful steps to serve others. 
countless deeds. I don't know what your gift is, but we're going to see it. Deeds of mercy, deeds of kindness, deeds of hospitality, deeds of, yes, healing, deeds of teaching, deeds of encouragement, and more will lead to story after story after story after story after story after story. I know I'm being around. After story after story after story after story after story of the supernatural becoming natural. God showed up in this place and now it's happening all the time. That's what that phrase means. And not only that, God's love going public in every corner of our homes, church, and city. And that comes straight out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, that says, to each, you are included in that, as we highlighted last week, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That means God is showing up in you and through you so that people can see the power and the presence and the love of God. Amen, Pastor Tanner. I love this last part. Redemption Hill will be a church where everyone lives empowered in the king's palace. Where's Nehemiah? Is he in the temple? Is he in the synagogue? Oh, this is just for Sundays. You know, this is for community group. Everywhere. We will be a church that lives empowered. Everywhere. If you delight to fear God's name, this is the people. These are the people that are praying. To delight to fear God's name is to say, man, it is such a joy for me to recognize who God is and his position and my position. That he is God, I am not. That I can have a reverential awe before him because he is great, he is awesome. I am not great, I am not awesome. But as I connect my story to his story, then great things start happening in and through my life. The more we do, the more we delight to fear the name of God, the more we will find ourselves on our knees and giving up a few meals to pursue God in his heart again. Redemption Hill, it's time to build again. It's time to, it's always time to build again. He's like, yeah, sure it is, but right, right now it is really time to build again. But I got to end with point five. The sermon's almost done. Not only seek God's power in community, but listen, let your ask move you to act. Let your ask move you to act. What we see here in Nehemiah chapter 1 is that Nehemiah prays this heartfelt prayer. Things aren't good. God, you said they wouldn't be good, and you said they could get better, and you promised to do it. But wait, you... you God, you might want to use me in your plans. Oh, Lord, verse 11, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayers of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. What we're going to see next week as we jump into chapter 2, as this man refers to the king. And Nehemiah was his cupbearer, a very important position. And so Nehemiah is praying and he's dreaming and then he's scheming, saying, okay, 
God, I am, I am asking you to do this, but I'm about to take a step of faith. And I'm about to act on the very prayers I'm praying. Which, listen, if prayer be true, it will lead us to action. If prayer is sincere, it will move us to move out and work to see those prayers answered. Jacques Yule, a French philosopher who wrote a book on prayer probably about a half a century ago. It was actually called Prayer in the Modern Man. Uh, not as modern today, but just as relevant. He says this about prayer. One cannot hold oneself in reserve. One cannot pretend to be aloof in the venture in which one is asking God to involve himself fully. I'm going to read that again. One cannot hold oneself in reserve, hold back. One cannot pretend to be aloof in the venture in which one is asking God to involve himself fully. Whoever wrestles with God in prayer puts his whole life at stake. If you really care about the things you're praying for, you will not just say, oh God, I hope those people get fed. Oh God, I hope that, you know, they'll, 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 they'll experience a little bit of kindness today. You'll move out and you'll serve someone and you'll love someone and you'll care for someone and you'll encourage someone and you'll extend some mercy and you'll give of your resources to benefit someone else. We're going to pray, and we're going to pray through some pain. I want to invite Pedro and the team to come out, and as they, as they come and, and join me here, I just want to review, what, what, what are we saying when we pray through pain? What do we say? We, we praise God for his character and word. We confess our sins in the light of his holiness. We pray the promises of God's word. We seek God's power in community. And we let our ask move us to act. And listen, as, as we enter into this new year, we don't know what 2022 holds. We don't, we don't know where, where we're going to be six months from now, 12 months from now as a church family. What we do know already is, hey, January 16, 2022, we're not the same church that we were two years ago. And that's okay. God is in control. It's great. But we're also not the church that we will be as we seek his face and seek his power together. And so before we pray, listen, I just want to ask you, would you, would you just, what's, what's burdening your heart today? 
Maybe it's something in your life individually. Maybe it's something in your, your life in terms of your family. Maybe it's something that's going on in the life of our church, something we want to see. Maybe something on last Sunday, a vision, a prayer, a, a, a gift that you want to possess and exercise or grow in. Listen, whatever it is that's burdening your heart, you have an opportunity to take that to God and keep taking that to God and not just do it in isolation but invite some other people into the story so that we can do it together to see him move. But let me remind you, there is a true and greater Nehemiah who as he was riding into the city of Jerusalem looked down with compassion and he wept over the city. And not only did he weep over the city, but he not just put his whole, he, yes, he put his whole life at stake. In fact, he put his life on a stake, on a tree to die in our place that we might have life. It's in Jesus Christ that we have the greatest example of what it means to relate to God. It's in Jesus Christ that we have the greatest example of what it means to pursue God and to ask God to move. It's in Jesus Christ that we now find the power to move on and to act for what we're asking for. So whatever it is, whatever it is, would you take it to God now in prayer, Father, we thank you.